This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. This podcast contains graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. True North True Crime is produced on the territories of the Coast Salish people. I think it's really important just to really explain that my brother was such a huge light in everyone's life that he touched. I mean, he, he was so loyal and so, like, he was my biggest cheerleader. He was just always encouraging, always positive. Um, there was no darkness and there was no sadness. It was just always, always like, what was the sunny side? And I think that gets lost as I tell the story and I sort of fall apart. No individual's life is a linear path. There will be instances where we are deviated from our intended course. There will be times where we feel disoriented. However, there will also be moments of resilience and inner strength. During the early 80s, a young boy endured abuse from a system that was supposed to safeguard him. For many years, he relentlessly pursued accountability and justice. Despite the pain and trauma inflicted upon him, he discovered the bravery to stand up for what was just. In 2013, that same boy had grown into a man, only to go missing. Presently, his family is fighting for change, raising awareness, and ensuring that people recognize him as the hero he truly is. In this episode, we ask you to help find Jonathan Riley, and you are listening to True North True Crime. Hello, everyone. Welcome to True North True Crime. Thanks for joining us. If you're looking for more True North True Crime, you can sign up for TNTC Plus on Patreon or on Apple Podcasts. For just $5 a month, you receive early release episodes, ad-free listening, and monthly bonus content. If you have a case suggestion for us, you can send it to truenorthtruecrime at gmail.com. We do prioritize cases that come to us from family members or close contacts, but are more than happy to receive case suggestions from everyone. 
Okay, with that, let's get into this week's episode. In this episode, we are discussing the 2013 disappearance of 46-year-old Jonathan Michael Riley. John was a lifelong Toronto resident who had recently started spending time in Meaford, Ontario. In early April of 2013, John had left a note for his mother stating that he was heading to Toronto to do some work and that he would be back in a few days. But John did not return home. John was last seen on April 26, 2013. Friends and family reported him missing multiple times. However, law enforcement did not officially open a missing persons file for John until October of 2013. At the time of his disappearance, John is described as a 46-year-old white male. He's listed as 5 feet 9 inches tall and weighs 220 pounds. John had short brown and gray hair when he was last seen, and he has brown eyes. Anyone with information regarding his disappearance is asked to call the OPP non-emergency line. That's the Ontario Provincial Police, and that line is 1-888-310-1122, or you can call Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477 or 1-800-222-TIPS. We put this episode together using publicly available news articles. We also spoke at length with John's sister Judy from her home in Hawaii, Judy is a passionate advocate for her brother and missing people in Canada. She has spoken as part of the Bruce MacArthur Inquiry and advocated for changes to the Missing Persons Act in Ontario and in Canada. She counts among her allies, judges, investigators, politicians, and other missing persons advocates. We are incredibly grateful that she took some time to speak with us. John's story is pretty complex. There are many moving parts. Judy is an expert in her brother's disappearance and has taught herself the intricacies of a missing person's investigation. Because of this, we will be deferring to Judy a lot in this episode, using audio clips from our conversation on Zoom. As an additional content warning, this episode contains references to childhood sexual abuse and a serial killer. We learned through our conversation with Judy that John Riley came from an incredibly interesting family. His father was a gifted scientist who held a PhD in chemical and civil engineering and was part of the team that invented carbon fiber. John's mother was a master's degree holder who worked in education. John Riley was born on July 3, 1966. Judy was born in 1967, and their younger sister was born after that. Judy described for us what she called an unconventional childhood filled with travel and adventure. Sure. Well, we have... uh you know, a very unusual upbringing. We, um, my parents met in Nova Scotia. They're many generations Canadian. But at the time that my brother was born, they were living in Cambridge, England. My father was studying um, his PhD. And, um, you know, that actually <laughs> confuses a lot of people that my brother was born in England because he, he is Canadian. He was just born abroad. So we moved to uh, Montreal, then I was born. And shortly after, we moved to Hong Kong and then Thailand. So we had a, um, I wouldn't say nomadic, but we moved quite a bit. <laughs> we went to, you know, my, my father was a civil and chemical engineer. So we traveled quite extensively. And when we ended up in Toronto, when my sister was born, 
Um, my mom wasn't really that keen on living in Toronto, but she was keen on never moving again. So from there, we traveled very frequently. We had several trips a year. We went to the Caribbean or um, down through the States or, you know, we were always traveling. So that sort of planted the seed in all of us, all three children, our travelers. Um, my sister and I ended up in Hawaii and... You know, that was really instilled in us, that sort of traveling gene. After traveling all over the world, the family settled down in Toronto, Ontario, a place where they would call home for decades to come. Judy joked that choosing Toronto wasn't for any particular reason, but just that it was time to stop moving. We asked Judy what John was like as a child. John could do anything he could set his mind to. He was always the best. He was very, very athletic. So he was the pitcher at the softball team and you know I so I had to be the pitcher (laughs) so he was always elevating my athletics he did really well in track and field he did well in anything that he um, set his mind to academics were not his strong point he really floundered academically and so he sort of made up for that with his sports and he was widely popular very very good looking and sort of the golden child in that regard and um, we had, you know, we were sort of racist twins. We were in the same grade. We had a lot of the same friends and John was very effervescent. He was very, um, just keen to do, like, he was just always up for something, but he was always up for practical jokes. He always had long standing practical pranks and jokes. He really liked getting a rise out of people. He really liked being that, um, Oh, we had some practical jokes that went on for years. Like we had these silly little um, pom-pom animals that he made with these googly eyes. And we would like hide them in each other's bedroom. But, you know, you'd wait several weeks and then you'd hide them again, you know. And it was like we'd have these ongoing practical jokes all the time. Another one was this tiny little alarm clock that we would hide in each other's room. And you'd wait for like... You know, you'd wait six months before you would plant it again and you would do it the night before like a really serious exam or something. <laughs> and then it was like you wouldn't possibly like you couldn't wake the other person up because then you would lose. You know, so we had that kind of relationship of just he was just always um, very supportive, very loyal, very fun, very outgoing and just always on the go, always fishing or riding his bike or playing baseball or tobogganing or skating, playing hockey, you know, always doing something. As John grew into his teenage years, he was a popular, smart and athletic student. He studied music, played sports and did his best academically. John dreamed of one day becoming a pilot. In fact, according to Judy, John steered his first plane in just the second grade. Apparently, ever since then, he was hooked on the idea of becoming a commercial pilot. As they entered grade 9 and 10, life was good. But it was at this time that John and his family's life would be forever changed. Midway through grade 10, Judy started to notice a change in John. She described to us a cloud of darkness that seemed to surround him. It was hard to understand what was going on with her brother, who had been such a bright light. Judy explained to us the changes that she noticed and the effect that it had on the family. John, when he was in the second grade, 
we were in Nova Scotia and it was the first time he flew a plane. And in that moment, he decided that he was going to be a pilot and he was pretty like, he was just, that was what he was going to do. He was going to be a pilot. He was going to be a commercial pilot. And he, he set his goal very, very young. And, um, this is hard for me to talk about. Everything was side railed by that, that, incident i don't know how deeply you want to go into it but you know everything we were swimming along everything was great ninth grade 10th grade um halfway through the 10th grade is when it happened and then halfway through the 11th grade we were expelled from the school so everything got derailed so ninth grade was a honeymoon ninth grade was great he had a lot of friends he was um life of the party my parents traveled quite a bit so we had a lot of parties at our house um, he was very, very popular. And then everything changed, you know, in the 10th grade. And I saw a, a cloud of darkness. It, it was just night and day. My brother, who was just like the eternal sunshine, um, just there was just something off, you know. And I knew there was something wrong, and I just couldn't figure it out. And it wasn't until the summer after it happened that he told me. And then I, w- I became really scared to tell our friends it became this secret, and I actually stopped going to school in the 11th grade. I made all, all kinds of excuses. And, you know, everything just sort of turned. There was a big um, change. We moved to, we, when we, once we moved schools, we tried to sort of, we tried to reestablish. We sort of cut off ties from all of our friends, and there were a lot of whispers in the community, and we just, you know, deny, 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 nothing happened. And we just wanted to change <laughs> was sort of how we sold it to everyone and to the community. And at the new school, it was really hard. The school was really far away. We had to take several buses to get there. And it was sort of an alternative education. It was very challenging academically. Not a lot of supports from the teachers. And we're sort of left to our own. And we doubled up on our courses to try and sort of fast track out of there that was back when there was a grade 13 so we tried to overcompensate you know taking multiple courses and taking night classes and it it was really hard but we sort of tried to reinvent our high school experience and we just tried but it you know it didn't quite work um john was never the same after the incident Judy is referring to an incident, and there is no easy way to say this. But while John was a student in grade 10, he was groomed over a period of time and sexually assaulted by a trusted teacher at his high school. This grooming was ongoing until John spoke out. The year was 1982, and the teacher that John spoke out against was a revered member of the academic community in their town. Yeah, that's what makes it so um, sinister is that someone in authority preyed upon students. And not only that, but the people that were, it was two teachers, it was a pair of um, pedophiles that went to that school strictly to teach so they would have access to boys. So they worked in tandem. And that's what's so sinister about the situation. And they were so revered in the community. One of the teachers was so revered that there was a restaurant downtown that had a table and a chair that was only allocated for that teacher. No one else could sit there but that teacher. Somehow they infiltrated the, the upper elite of, 
of Toronto, and they were very revered in um, the music community. And that was just another layer of complication because they were so, they were celebrities, and you know no one would have believed that such a thing was going on. In the immediate aftermath of the allegations, John was not believed. In fact, it seemed as though the school had sided with the teacher at the time. John told two teachers about the incident. One of those teachers failed him, while the other did nothing. John's dad was also ignored when he reported the assault to the principal. Eventually, John's dad called a friend who was an education superintendent, and a meeting was called. For John and Judy, high school became an unwelcoming place for them to be, and their grades started to slip. Eventually, it was decided that the teacher would leave the school, and so would John and Judy. Halfway through grade 11 in 1984, they enrolled at another high school and attempted to continue on with their lives. But the trauma from the sexual assault was a heavy burden to bear. We will get more into the legal proceedings surrounding the abuse as the podcast moves on, but for now, we are going to let Judy describe what her family went through in trying to both address the abuse and live in the aftermath. It's important to note here that this type of trauma is unfortunately not uncommon in Canada, and we really want to give Judy the space to speak on behalf of her brother and her family's experience. Ultimately, what ended up happening is that when we were off the universe, both my brother and I dropped out of school, which was a travesty because both of my parents are super educated. My mom has multiple degrees, university degrees. My dad has a PhD. He was a professor at the University of Toronto and we didn't finish high school. I was an honor student, but I couldn't finish. And what happened is when you go into university and you, you enter with this sense of failure, even though we both were able to get into university, it wasn't until we were in university that we sort of were confronted with, with that trauma and that we hadn't really processed it. My brother sort of tail spinning. And I think what was worse than the sexual assault was that we both, as we got older, we understood that he was groomed. We didn't know what grooming was back then. We didn't really understand that all of it was a setup and that the whole year prior to the incident was grooming. And as we started to understand grooming, like you, you feel sort of a sense of foolishness, like how did I fall into that trap? But these predators, you know, they're experts. That's what they do. And they have, um, you know, victim after victim after victim after victim because it's highly effective, these strategies. But as you process it as an adult, as you develop your own relationships with, you know, serious relationships, with, then you start to understand what they were doing. It's really devastating, and it's really hard to process what happened to you. And we both sort of went through that, um, just, just really acknowledging how much trauma. And, you know, you just sort of start to unpack it, but you don't really, it wasn't really talked about even back then. Um, and it was just really hard to process. It permeates all, all aspects of your life until you deal with the trauma. John did everything he could to manage in the aftermath. He tried to continue his education and get his life on track. There were limited resources out there for survivors of childhood sexual abuse at that time. According to Judy, John went through a period of what she refers to as tailspinning. He made some questionable decisions and lost focus. Keep in mind, John was not believed. 
There was an immense sense of injustice and he was abused and came forward. Not only was he dealing with the trauma of the abuse, but it was layered with the injustice and his own pain. Earlier, we mentioned that John dreamt of becoming a commercial airline pilot. Well, eventually, he made the decision to continue that pursuit. From 1987 until 1989, he studied and logged hours for his pilot's license. In the summers, he traveled to tree plant in British Columbia. In 1991, he graduated from university, but that summer, the family was hit with the tragic news that their father had died. At that time, most people became commercial pilots after spending time in the military. However, John researched and then enrolled in the one school where military experience was not necessary. It seemed that this was John reclaiming his life and moving towards his goals. But unfortunately, it didn't go as planned. Here's Judy. Prior to university, uh, John went to, um, there's only one school in Canada at the time where you could become a pilot without going through the military. And so it was really expensive. It was tens of thousands of dollars. And he went through the training in New Brunswick and he was top gun. He was, uh, he was um, just a superior pilot. He excelled at absolutely everything he did. He was top of his class. And he was able to get, you know, there's various levels of licenses. This is not just like getting a private pilot's license. He was going for his multi-engine, his instrument. And there's, you know, as you go up through the, the ranks of becoming a commercial pilot, you have to log a lot of hours. So after that experience where he was trained in New Brunswick, when he went off to university, he was logging his hours. During that year, at, toward the end of the year, when he was tail spinning, and uh, he ended up um, checking himself into a hospital to try and stabilize. And after, like during that period, he recognized everything that had happened to him in high school that he had buried. Everything he was doing in his life was a response to that trauma. And so he was trying to work his way through the, you know, just ex excavating through that trauma. But as a consequence of that, he found out that he could not be a pilot, that his lifelong dream since the second grade could not happen. And, um, you know, again, another trauma on top of the trauma, you know, all related to the incident. And mm -hmm. he was trying to, he was trying to um, resolve the trauma. He was trying to make better choices. And as a consequence of that, he was penalized. And he wouldn't have been able to fly and get his license. Everything he had worked for his entire life, had he just saw it evaporate. So unfortunately for John, he was unable to complete his commercial pilot program. Recognizing the need for help, John sought help from a mental health facility but reaching out for help was an admission of a mental health issue. This admission would remove him from being eligible for being a commercial pilot. His abuser had not only robbed John of his childhood, but also now his adulthood. He was shattered. Between the fall of 1991 and 1993, John took a job as a teacher in Thailand, and from all accounts he thrived there, seemingly freed from the pain of the past, for the next few years, he traveled through Asia and Africa. And then in 1994, John returned to Toronto, and this is where things got complicated again for him. 
During this time frame, John was spinning. He became consumed with the idea of holding the teacher and the school board accountable. At the very least, he wanted the teacher removed from teaching, which apparently he was doing again. But what John really wanted was someone to admit that he was abused by an entrusted adult, and for that, the adult should be removed from society by the justice system. According to Judy, John knocked on the doors of the principal and school board members, and he confronted people wherever he could. At one dark moment, John stole a plane. He flew it around the Toronto area, and in his mind, he considered flying it into the teacher's house in the hopes of ending the situation permanently. He thought better of it and landed the plane, but not before he made the news. John was arrested for the plane incident. As a result of that, he was hospitalized and banned from being around airports. We did try to find archive news coverage of the plane theft, but we came up empty. But eventually there was some movement. The teacher was removed from teaching yet again. There was no announcement or apology. He just didn't teach at that particular school anymore. Instead, the teacher went back to school and became a prominent lawyer. And his life was fine. It was incredibly painful for John to watch his former teacher succeed. Not only to succeed, but to become an expert in the legal system. The system that did not offer any protection for John, who was not only a victim of abuse at the hands of the teacher, but was also a whistleblower trying to create a safer environment for future children. Eventually, John put things aside for a while and went back to school and became an electrical engineer. But he was still focused on getting justice. Judy explains what was going on for John at this point in his adult life. As an adult, he, he worked really hard. Um, he got a second, you know, breath of life. He decided he was going to go to school to be an electrical engineer. So he had a career shift. And, you know, he was never happy. That's not what he wanted to do. He didn't want to work with computers. You know, his passion was to fly and his passion was the outdoors. And now he's working inside of, you know, just trying to get a job to make ends meet. And so there was a sadness with, um, he was unfulfilled. You know, his passions had been taken away from him. And so he would, he balanced sort of this idea of, having a career in computers. Uh, it was sort of this tedious darkness. And then he, he worked really hard to work inside of the system to have the teacher incarcerated. And it wasn't until he recognized that he could no longer just, you know, do it anonymously. He had to put his name out there. He had to say, I am John Riley. I'm a victim of this teacher, and this happened to me. And you can join, you know, our, our lawsuit, because I know it happened to a lot of kids, but I'll take the hit. And so when he put his name out there, everything changed. It was a huge transformation for him, because then he became sort of the face of all of that history at the school, and that other students could come forward under the protection of anonymity, and John really wanted media coverage. He was ready to take it on. And that transformation was uh, super scary for our family. Um, my mom did not want the community to know that it happened. She just didn't want anything to do with it. She, it was uh, like shameful that my brother was pursuing this. She wanted him to just let it go. But I was, you know, his biggest supporter. And I thought that the only way that he could really heal was to 
just resolve the situation and the teacher needed to be incarcerated. So he did pursue it vehemently for decades. So John stepped forward. In 2008, he started a Facebook campaign against his abuser. Through this campaign, John learned that there were other victims of the same man. John filed both criminal and civil cases in what was now considered a historic sexual abuse case. Keep in mind, what happened to John was in the 1980s. Laws were very different. Today, there are no longer statutes of limitations with regard to historic sexual abuse, but during John's time, there were. In fact, the statute of limitations laws ended in 2016 for historic sexual abuse. So by 2008, John began legal action. And at the same time, John was shocked to learn that the man was teaching again. So the assault happened in the 80s. The teacher wasn't arrested until 2008. And it's important to add that when he was arrested, he was back teaching at the same school, committing the same crimes. You know, nothing had changed. And so part of what my brother was so determined to get the teacher incarcerated is that he knew that he was continuing the behavior. He knew that there were more victims. And it tortured my brother to know that he he couldn't make it stop. You know, predators, men like that don't stop. They need to be stopped. They don't change. There's no transformation. You know, and we, to this day, I don't understand why, like, no one steps in to stop him. You know, the community knows now. The police know now. And yet, you know, he's still, he's still a free man. The following is an excerpt from an article about the teacher's arrest. This article is dated July 7th, 2008. Quote, a Toronto teacher was re-arrested Monday after being accused of sexually assaulting three students between 1978 and 1984. The teacher, who is 58 years old, was initially arrested on May 21st after a former student, who was 15 at the time, said he had sexually assaulted him in 1982. Since the arrest, two more former students have come forward claiming he sexually assaulted them as well, police say. The incidents are alleged to have occurred at the teacher's home. After the teacher was initially charged and released in May, he did not return to the classroom as police continued their investigation. A spokesperson for the Toronto District School Board said at the time, Police say there may be possibly more victims and they are still investigating the allegations. The teacher has been charged with three counts of indecent assault and will appear in court on July 24th. So we were unable to find the outcome of the trial or the civil case through traditional media. We have since learned that in the criminal case, there was under a, it was under a bit of a publication ban to protect the victims. In 2010, during a preliminary hearing, the judge ruled that the statute of limitations had passed on the sexual assault. Again, as we said, that law didn't change until 2016. But we've also learned that the teacher was given a peace bond and ordered to uh, keep the peace and stay away from John and asked no longer to teach. It was reported in Mississauga.com that, quote, in 2010, the teacher resigned in the midst of a disciplinary hearing before the Ontario College of Teachers. He was banned from ever seeking a teaching certificate again. So in 2011, the civil case against the school board was filed, and in 2012, it also ended under a degree of secrecy. 
So here's Judy. She helped us fill in some of the blanks. Well, there were a couple of court cases. The first one was John Riley versus the teacher. And there were many victims that came forward. And unfortunately, John was ahead of his time. It was before the Me Too movement. The laws have since changed. This was in 2009, I believe, 2010. Um, the, the laws changed in 2016. So back then, it was up to the judge to decide whether it was a pretrial. It was up to the judge to decide if it could go to trial. And unfortunately, the, the presiding judge had two sons at the same school. He should have recused himself. You know, he was too close to the case. And the judge thought it was a good idea not to go to trial and just the teacher would resign. So he surrendered his teaching license and he committed to never teaching again. But that wasn't enough. It should have gone to trial. He should have been incarcerated. And since 2016, these historical sex crimes that happen, they can't, it's not up to the judge anymore. They go to trial. And another thing that's changed is that, um, you know, this idea of the statute of limitations has passed that doesn't exist anymore in Canada. And the other thing that John did is then he sued the Board of Education. And the laws changed in the States last year, and I believe it was the year before, what, you know, much like what happened in the churches, is that, you know, these uh, non-disclosure agreements, this, these confidentiality agreements, what ends up happening is that they, they protect the predator because everything that goes on gets recorded and put into a file that no one has access to as part of the confidentiality agreement. So everything gets settled. And my brother wanted media attention. There was a media ban on both the court case, the pretrial, and the Board of Education. And my brother was really opposed to that because he wanted everyone to know that it was happening. He wanted the community to know so that other victims would understand the situation and they would come forward. And as more victims would come forward, then he would have a bigger case and he would be, you know, obviously believed his credibility um, would be bolstered with more victims. And they swept everything under the under the carpet you know i think one of the the most like the the worst thing that happened the outcome there was a moment there was sort of this turning point where everyone was going to settle and they reached an agreement and my brother i don't know i believed it too so i wasn't delusional i thought there'd be a moment where the there was this panel of people that represented the school and I thought the outcome was, gonna, was going to be, I'm really sorry this happened to you. We should have done better, you know, and these are the changes we're going to implement so it doesn't happen again. That never happened. He never got an apology. And he also thought that he would get an honorary diploma from the school. And he thought that he would be thanked. He thought there would be a level of gratitude that he had the courage to pursue this for decades and that never happened and that was pretty crushing for him to recognize that like, nobody cared they just wanted it to go away and as quietly as possible they wanted it to go away and that that was really um that was really devastating to john 
Shortly after our call with Judy, she followed up with us about the settlement with the school board. His settlement occurred in November of 2012, and the amount of money was quite small. It amounted to the price of a used car, and keep in mind his lawyers took a large chunk of that money. With that money, John was able to purchase a bike, and he used the rest of the money to fund a hike on the world-famous El Camino Trail in Spain. This was a trip of a lifetime for John. So after decades of struggling as an adult survivor of childhood sexual abuse and fighting a system intent on keeping him quiet, John had finally won a small victory. A small victory that came in an almost David versus Goliath metaphor. There was another lifestyle change that happened in November of 2012. After decades of living in Toronto and having a permanent residence there, John's family sold their Toronto home and moved to Meaford, Ontario. This was a massive shift for John and John's mom, who had always called Toronto home. By this time, Judy was already living in Hawaii for a couple of decades. John had a boat at the time, and Meaford is a harbor town, so John decided to move to Meaford with his mom. This was a big adjustment for John, whom Judy called a city boy. At this time, John was working as a freelance computer technician, picking up gigs on a contract basis. John visited Judy in Hawaii on a pretty regular basis because he also has another sister there as well. In fact, he came to visit her in February of 2013, just two months before he went missing. While in Meaford, John did some hiking and camping and he was fond of the Bruce Trails and the Georgian Bay. He was always seen carrying a green backpack. He also hiked in other areas and spent time on his boat. There was also a period of time when John rode a motorcycle across Canada so clearly he liked adventure. John also liked to schedule his year around the summer months. For spring and winter and fall, he worked hard and saved his money in order to take summers off to camp. While in Meaford, John would take trips to Toronto and sometimes Ottawa for work. On these trips, he would either drive his car or take the bus to avoid parking issues. These trips to the city would last a couple of days before John returned back to Meaford. Getting the timeline of John's disappearance is difficult. John was living with his mom, who was in the early stages of memory loss related to aging. Judy and his other sister were both in Hawaii at the time. While they were in frequent contact with John, it's impossible to know the details of his daily life. But what we do know is that on April 26, 2013, John left a handwritten note for his mother. The note read, in part, quote, Mom, Gone to Toronto for a couple of days, got my GST. That's a reference to his GST check. John did not return and has not been seen since. So as we just stated, it was not unusual for John to jump on a bus from the small town of Meaford and head to the big city of Toronto, where he would look for casual work and hang out at his favorite coffee shops. However, this time he did not return. So Judy shared with us how she found out her brother was possibly missing. At the time in April, when we were working on this project, I had surgery that I didn't think was very, uh, it was, I didn't think it was going to be very serious. I thought I'd be down for a couple of days. Um, so I left, I sent him an email and I said, oh, I'm actually not doing so good. Give me 14 days and I need to recover before I work on the project again. And so after the 14 days lapsed, um, I reached out to him again and we were emailing back and forth and then I had a lot of catching up to do so 
I wasn't hyper-focused on what John was doing. So it wasn't like there was a moment where, you know, a typical, like, you know, you think of these missing persons, oh, she didn't come home, you know, and, you know, there were signs. It was not like that. He just left a note that he was going to Toronto for a few days. I basically, I, I hadn't heard from him and I was back from surgery and I was feeling better and I was like, okay, let's go. And I didn't hear from him. And that was super unusual. My brother was very responsive to any phone calls or any emails. He meet, like right, he would call me right back within the hour. And so I knew there was something wrong and I contacted my mom and she was like, oh no, he just went to Toronto. I said, well, why isn't he back? Why isn't he returning my calls? And so uh, enough time passed that I was getting really, really worried. But I made the mistake of not understanding that my mom was in the early stages of dementia. And I didn't understand that she wasn't processing what was happening. Then I just took her word for it that my brother was in Toronto. So on April 26, 2013, John Riley headed to Toronto for a couple of days but did not return home. We're now going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. When we return, we will talk about the difficulty of reporting a missing person, some theories, and if John's case has any connection to the Canadian serial killer, Bruce MacArthur. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. And we are back. So before the break, we outlined the life of 46 year old John Riley. John was a survivor of childhood sexual abuse at the hands of a former teacher. As an adult, he fought the system for change and accountability. In 2013, the longtime Torontonian left his new home in Meaford, Ontario to do some work in Toronto, but he did not return. There was a delay in reporting John missing as his mom was experiencing memory loss and his other family members were not in the country. John left his vehicle at home, so it's safe to say that he either took a bus, which was normal for him, or he got a ride. However, no one has come forward to say that they drove him to the city. It wasn't until November of 2013 that police searched the family's home and found his personal belongings, including a laptop, a bank card, which suggested that he wasn't planning on being gone for long. Judy shared with us the difficulties that she faced reporting her brother missing. And so in July, I had a moment where I was, I was actually cooking. I was in the kitchen and I, I was so overcome with this, uh, it's sort of this inexplicable moment. I fell to my knees and I, I, um, I couldn't breathe and I just gasped and I went, oh, something just happened to John. 
and I, I was like I was so overwhelmed that I I I um I called my mom it was the middle of the night there and uh I said something's going on and so finally I asked her I said have you heard from John like have you actually spoken to him are you emailing him is he responding to you I didn't understand why he wasn't responding to me and so that's when I reached out to um report I'm missing and I couldn't get a call back I would leave messages and messages to the police to the OPP and I, I couldn't get a response and so then I contacted an old neighbor from our old neighborhood where we grew up in Toronto and um that she sounded the alarm and she sort of brought me to a sense of like this is not like John wouldn't do this and I said I know I don't understand. And so she reported him missing. And because John had a history with 22 Division, that's where all of this went down with the teacher, um, it made sense to report him missing there. So our old neighbor went into 22 Division and reported him missing. We didn't know at the time that it, you know, until Bruce MacArthur happened, no one took missing adults, especially missing men, seriously. And so we didn't know that there wasn't actually a law. There's no protocol. There's, like, it doesn't exist in Canada. There's no police protocol that says, you know, when you walk into a police station, this is what happens when someone is reported missing. That doesn't exist. And so they weren't actually taking a report. But we didn't know that at the time. And so she kept going in and she would she would ask she says oh you know Jonathan Riley is still missing is there any information and they would put his name in the computer and nothing would come up and she we were just really confused we didn't understand that they weren't taking a report so finally she went in with another neighbor and she said you know this is serious we need to have this report taken we don't understand why John's not in the computer there were clearly some miscommunications going on with local law enforcement. You will often see John referred to in the media as the man from Meaford who went missing. This proved to add to the complications. John was in Toronto or on his way to Toronto when he went missing. However, his family had difficulty reporting him missing in Toronto. A family friend reported John missing to 22 Division, or so she thought. It turned out that they had just taken down her information and no report was ever filed. So the family was eventually told to file with the OPP in Meaford. And when it came to the police in Meaford, they felt that maybe he had just simply vacated his life. Judy was trying to manage all of this from Hawaii. Many times she assumed that the police were searching for John, but they were not. In fact, she learned at one point that they had not even filed John as a missing person. This created a six-month gap where no one was looking for John except his family and some friends. The following is from an article on Mississauga.com. OPP Detective Sergeant Byron Schwass, the Gray County detective in charge of the file, admits this missing person case is particularly difficult. We can only work with what we have. It's a tough one, he said in a telephone interview. Every case is unique in its own way. We had hurdles right off the top with this one. As in any investigation, time is of the essence. The first hurdle Gray County investigators faced was the passage of time. The detachment didn't start working on the case until October of 2013, 
when they received an official missing persons report. With a six-month gap between the time John left his note and the launch of an investigation, video surveillance images from the convenience store where he would have purchased the bus ticket were long gone. Tracking a six-month-old bus ticket or finding witnesses was equally problematic. The opportunity for evidence was lost, Schwass said. So John was not officially recorded as missing until October of 2013, and his file was not entered into the RCMP database for another year. Initially, investigators believed that John had not left the Meaford area and that perhaps he had left or vacated his life. In recent years, they have since walked that back. Despite Judy's frustrations with law enforcement, she does not entirely blame the police. Instead, she points to a system that is simply not designed to find missing adults. This is a system that Judy has been fighting to change since her brother went missing. A lot has changed since 2013, but back then, they didn't take missing persons seriously. And there were so many laws that protected privacy that have since changed. The Missing Persons Act has revolutionized um, you know, police, you know, I'm not, it's important to know that I'm not uh, criticizing the police and what they were doing at the time because the police were just doing their job. There, there was no missing persons protocol. So there is no, there was no handbook at the time. And also it's important to know that their hands were tied. Privacy laws protected um, they couldn't access his bank accounts. They couldn't access his phone records. They couldn't access his social media. There was nothing they could access. Unless foul play was suspected, there's nothing they could do. So it wasn't until um, December that a press release was done. And by then, so much time had passed that they couldn't, you know, what could they really investigate? And they kept saying their hands were tied. There's nothing they could do because foul play wasn't suspected. The investigation into John's disappearance is pretty bare bones, but we do know a few things. We know that his car was at home, so he most likely took a bus, which he had done in the past. We know that he left a note saying that he was going to Toronto and he'd be back in a few days. Video surveillance from the store that John would have purchased the bus ticket at was erased by the time investigators attended the scene. So it can be theorized that John didn't go camping or hiking and get lost. If he was going camping, he would have said so. We also know that John didn't go on some elaborate trip. John loved to travel, but he also loved planning those travels. And he loved talking about it, especially with Judy and his sister, his other sister. He would have been incredibly open with both of them if he was taking a trip. From what we understand... There has been no banking activity, no social media or phone activity. John has also not been registered as having left the country with a Canadian passport. But in 2018, Judy received a call from Toronto investigators. They asked Judy if John had a scar on his torso. What many people do not know is that Toronto serial killer Bruce MacArthur had thousands of images of male torsos on his hard drive. These men, for the most part, were all alive in the photos, which were taken by Bruce MacArthur. Police spent years trying to find out who all of these men were and if any of them were victims of Bruce MacArthur. Before we get into this connection, we need to recap the Bruce MacArthur case. 
Many people only know MacArthur for the eight murders he was convicted for, but his story is much more complex than that. Many people, including us, believe that Bruce is likely responsible for many, many, many more murders. Bruce MacArthur lived in Ontario for the majority of his life. In the 1970s, he worked as a buyer for the Eaton's department store. He then worked as a traveling salesman for McGregor Socks and then Stanfield's Underwear. He was married to a woman in the 1970s. In the 80s, he had a daughter and a son and apparently was quite active in his church. In the early 1990s, MacArthur began engaging in sexual relationships with men. Over a year later, he came out to his wife, but they continued to live together. After 1993, MacArthur's employment in the clothing trade ended and he and his wife faced financial difficulties partly due to legal issues involving their teenage son, Todd, who was making obscene phone calls to unknown women. In 1997, MacArthur separated from his wife and relocated to Toronto, as there was no gay community in the Oshawa area at that time. He frequented the bars in Toronto's gay village on Church and Wellesley and moved into an apartment on Don Mills Road. During a four-year relationship with another man, MacArthur sought psychiatric help and was prescribed Prozac for a few months as his divorce was being finalized. Around this time, he was also attempting to find employment as a landscaper. In 2001, Bruce was 50 and he was arrested for an assault on a man. Bruce had stalked the man and assaulted him with a lead pipe with the intention of kidnapping him and sexually assaulting him. For that assault, Bruce received a conditional sentence and was banned from Toronto's gay village. In 2014, Bruce had this charge expunged from his record. Stories about Bruce went around the village. He was very active on hookup sites and apps, and he was known as a BDSM guy who was into punishing rough sex. He often left his sexual partners in bad shape, and he also used drugs on them like GHB, poppers, and other sedatives. His reputation got him kicked out of bars and coffee shops in the gay village. By 2010, it was acknowledged that men were going missing from in and around the village. Some of these men were not openly gay and were new to Canada or on hard times. In 2012, Toronto Police Service launched Project Houston to look into three of these disappearances. Bruce MacArthur was actually interviewed in connection to Project Houston in November of 2013. This was seven months after John went missing. Some people believe that Bruce changed his behavior during Project Houston. Keep in mind that John went missing while Project Houston was moving along. This is when Bruce might have been changing his methods. We will get into this in a little bit. So Project Houston laid some groundwork but ultimately came up short, and more men went missing from the village. In 2017, Toronto's 51 Division launched Project Prism. We will not get into the entire Bruce MacArthur investigation, that's a whole other podcast or even series. However, Project Prism was successful. Bruce was arrested on January 18th, 2018 while attempting to kill another victim. There have been many criticisms of the Toronto Police Service, but ultimately the investigators who arrested Bruce did some really great work at that time. Bruce MacArthur was charged with eight murders. Many of the victims' remains were found at one of his landscaping jobs on Mallory Crescent in Leaside. He disposed of their remains on the property and in planters. In May of 2018, the police wrapped up their search of Mallory Crescent, leaving many people to question if there's more victims either there or in other locations that he had worked with his landscaping business. 
Ultimately, MacArthur waived his right to a preliminary hearing, and on January 29th, 2019, he pled guilty to the charges, and on November 9th, he was sentenced to life in prison with no parole for 25 years. So it's hard to fathom that a lifetime violent offender just stopped at eight murders. This guy was a crafty and violent man with an unhealthy addiction to sex, porn, and inflicting pain on submissive or unsuspecting men. He would lure them to his home, drug them, and film his abuse and the murder. This could have happened to anyone that he befriended. So you may ask why would anyone think that John would be a victim of Bruce MacArthur? John dated women, he was not a part of the BDSM or cruising scenes, he wasn't on any hookup websites. Earlier we said that during Project Houston, Bruce may have changed his methods away from finding men on hookup sites to finding men in other ways. Well, a little known fact about Bruce was that he would use homeless shelters to solicit men to do landscaping jobs for his landscaping company. He would hang out at the YMCA in the morning and offer day jobs to people staying in the shelter. It is possible that Bruce met men in other ways and simply invited them over to his apartment for a beer or to fix his computer. Then, once there, they could have been drugged and victimized. So what does this have to do with John? Well, first of all, John loved the village. He loved the vibe, he loved the coffee shops, and he had quite a few friends in the area. John also loved saving money, so he would stay at the YMCA near the village. And yes, John would also pick up day laborer jobs while he was staying in Toronto. One of Bruce's known victims is Dean Lisowick, a 47-year-old man who did odd jobs around the village and often stayed in shelters. It has never been clarified how Bruce connected with Dean. In 2019, Judy stated the following in an interview, quote, People say that it's really weird. Why would John stay in a shelter? But he was going there for work. It wasn't below him, so he would just stay at the shelters. His favorite was the Y because it was the safest. And when he wasn't working, he would go to one particular coffee shop, and it was the one that Bruce MacArthur visited. So Judy shared some thoughts with us about the Bruce MacArthur connection. You know, there was the whispers of Bruce MacArthur. Um, I was, we were reaching the five-year mark, and I'd always heard that five years, a case goes cold. And I'd had no, like, anytime I contacted the OPP, I was radio silence. I could never get an answer um, if they were investigating my brother's disappearance, if when remains were found, was my brother in the... Um, like the pool of, you know, possibilities. Are they including him? Like, I was never able to develop a relationship with the police. They didn't want to talk about my brother. So at the time of the Bruce MacArthur, as I started to hear about the murders, I didn't think that John had anything to do with it whatsoever. It, you know, as I heard that it was, uh, there was a serial killer that was, um, killing uh, gay men from downtown Toronto through a dating app. Uh, and there's no connection with my brother. But as the story unfolded, you know, I had a lot of people reaching out to me, just strangers, like, have you heard about this guy? And living in the States, we didn't hear the, it wasn't in the news here. And so when I was reading about, I was very dismissive. And then I found out that Bruce MacArthur was, um, a landscaper, 
and that his victims, you know, some of his victims came from the same places that my, where my brother stayed in Toronto. Then I, I was deeply concerned. And I don't think I'll ever know if John is a victim of Bruce MacArthur, and it is a possibility. In 2019, Judy received a very detailed tip from a member of the 12-step community in the Toronto Village. They knew Bruce from AA meetings. The tipster stated that they were in the Second Cup coffee shop on Church Street. They don't remember the exact date, but they believe it was in 2013 as they were working as a volunteer with the Pride Committee at the time. Toronto Pride preparations start early in the spring, which would be around the time that John went missing. The tipster stated that they remember because it was their last year working for Pride, so they believe that it must have been in 2013. The tipster goes on to say that they believe that John was with Bruce that day. They state that the two men, Bruce and John Riley, were both talking about landscaping at the coffee shop. Bruce asked the tipster to help him with referrals for landscaping and handed over his business card. The tipster gave this information to the Toronto Police Service along with other information about a day when Bruce had been targeting a homeless man at an AA meeting. Another tip has also come to Judy where a person states that they saw John with Bruce in a hardware store. However, upon further investigation, Judy was assured by authorities that John was not one of the torso picks that were on Bruce's hard drive. She has also been told that John has been ruled out as a victim of Bruce MacArthur. Police used DNA evidence. However, Judy has recently learned that the DNA used for John was taken off a pair of headphones that were in a home that John shared with other people. This does not feel definitive. When the search of Mallory Crescent ended, so did the investigation into further cases related to MacArthur. I've learned over the years just to collect the information and not to try to connect the dots. And I have enough information that I'm deeply disappointed that the police haven't dug a little bit deeper into seeing if he is a victim. But I think that, um, you know, they wanted to wrap up the investigation and they literally stopped digging at Mallory Crescent. If there are additional victims, I don't think we'll ever know because it's a can of worms that they just don't want to, they don't want to go down that path. It's definitely um, a possibility that there are more victims. In September of 2018, the Honourable Gloria J. Epstein began the missing and missed inquiry into the Toronto Police Service handling of the Bruce MacArthur case and other missing persons cases. John was not considered one of the missing Toronto men because he was technically living in Meaford and was not a TPS file. This has been a major pain point and cause of frustration for the family. John was a lifelong Toronto man. However, despite this classification, Judy spoke on behalf of her brother at the inquiry. Her words had a great impact on Judge Epstein and Judy felt heard by the judge. In all, Judge Epstein made 151 recommendations on how missing persons cases can be better investigated by the Toronto Police Service. Judy shared her experience with and after the inquiry. I'm deeply indebted to Judge Epstein. She led the inquiry after the Bruce MacArthur, um, she was part of the panel. She led the panel. At the end of her 36 months of investigation, she interviewed a lot of families. And she, she spoke to me early on. And she's, she, told, she shared with me when she was done, you know, as they were wrapping things up. And she, 
she shared with me that when I shared my story, it deeply affected her. And my story resonated with her, with all of the families. And she could see that it, it just repeated itself over and over again. Everyone that she spoke to had the same story as me. And so because John wasn't from Toronto at the time of his disappearance, she couldn't um, include that as part of her investigation. But she personally wrote a letter to the Toronto Police Commissioner and asked them if they could shine a, a light on my brother's disappearance. And that was a monumental shift. It was the first time that his disappearance was taken seriously. It wasn't until that letter that the OPP responded and I had my first formal investigation with the police and I believe it was 2021. John disappeared in 2013. That's a long time. Um, no, The police never interviewed me. And so that was the first formal interview. I also, in November of 2021, I was able to, part of the changes in the system that's happened is they now collect familial DNA. So I was able to give my DNA, even though I've offered it since 2013. They um, weren't able to take it until 2018 after the Missing Persons Act. And even then I kept asking. And then 2021 of November, my DNA was taken and so was my mom's. And for me, that was huge because now if remains show up, they have a, a checking point. There is no way to be certain that John was a victim of Bruce MacArthur, and we do not want to imply that he was, because right now so little is known about John's case. The most important point is that John Riley has been missing for a decade, and he deserves to be found. His family deserves answers. After many inquiries, both regional and national, almost every province has made changes to its missing persons legislation. For decades, police were prohibited from accessing timely information unless a crime was committed or suspected. This includes banking information, social media, phone records, hospital information, and even surveillance cameras. Canadians have a right to live their lives free of government intervention, meaning they can vacate their lives if they wish. This balance of the rights of the individual and the immediacy of a missing adult was often at odds. Police couldn't simply say, yes, foul play is involved and then magically have access to personal information. They actually had to prove to a certain threshold that foul play was involved. Now, with recent changes to legislation, investigators have access to more information when looking into a missing person's file. This is a positive thing. However, there's still a ways to go. Over the years, Judy and her family have had a bit of a tumultuous relationship with multiple police agencies. Some years were quite bad, while others were better. Investigators struggled to classify John's case and the jurisdiction. And by the time they were looking for John in earnest, the trail was cold. Recently, the OPP released a video and press release about John's case, vowing to continue the investigation until answers are found. Judy spoke to us about the recent shift in tone from the OPP and what it means to her and her family. I have been able to, in the last year, to develop a relationship for the first time with the detective who's in charge of the case. And she has made... Uh... Sorry. <laughs> She's pledged to me that John's case will not go cold and that she will always keep it open until it's solved, which is what you want to hear. We asked Judy how John's disappearance has impacted her and her family's lives. 
you know, throughout this entire journey, I keep, you know, people keep repeating to me, you know, I really hope you find closure. And what people don't realize with missing persons cases is that there will never be closure. We can find peace and we can find calm, but there'll never be closure because let's just even say like his, they identified John's remains. Well, then that just opens up a whole other series of questions. Like how did he get there and what happened and why didn't we know about it? So on and on it will go. There will never be closure. When the person goes missing, it just there's a, this huge vacuum. It's this hole that's created, this landmine in the family. And it ripples into all of the relationships. And nobody knows what to do. Nobody, nobody knows. Um, there's, there's, no, there's no handbook that says this is what you do when a person goes missing. Everybody has a different idea of what should be done. And in our own family, you know, a lot of conflict has arisen from it because we shouldn't do it that, that way. We should do it this way. No, we shouldn't do it that way. We should do it this way. And my mom was always of the mindset that John was just going to walk in the door. That's what was going to happen. Actually, one of the most painful things that happened on this journey is that as my mother, you know, um, as her as her dementia progressed and she was not capable of taking care of herself, I had to take away that door that she was counting on that my brother was going to walk through. We had to sell the house and put her into a nursing home. And that was... Uh, a monumental moment because she really believed that was that's what was going to happen and so then again you know more conflict in the family like should we sell the house should we not sell the house and the missing person leaves a cavernous hole that can't be filled it's just this great unknown and this you know man who brought so much happiness and joy and love to our family he was the pillar of our family he just vanished. And it's like all of our relationships changed. And we, like, I, I make a concerted effort, like, as I'm crying now, thinking about all these horrible things. Every single day, I wake up and I try to honor him. And I try and think, what can I do today to keep his light going? And, you know, John would give anything to anyone at any time. And he would not want me to be, to live this life of grief and sadness. And all of us have tried really hard to, you know, pick up the pieces and to honor him in that way. But there's this just, there's just a void. Over the years since John went missing, Judy has spoken to the media at Missing Inquiries and launched social media campaigns. We asked Judy how our listeners can help. The number one thing I would love you know, I really like when I receive messages and say, oh, I just, I heard this story or I watched this show and this is the first time I'm hearing about your brother and I'm really sorry. I love those messages of support, but also I love to know that his story is being spread. So the number one is to share his photo. I mean, someone knows something. People don't just vanish into thin air. Someone knows something. Every time his photo is shared, it gives me a glimmer of hope that he's going to be found. So that's a, that's the number one thing. And then on this idea that, you know, police protocol has to change, it's not going to change unless the public perception of the missing change. 
you know, so I really hope that, um, you know, I've, start, I've started petitions myself. I hope that the sentiment in Canada changes to missing adult. The other thing that's really important is, um, you know, don't don't tell the the family and loved ones of the missing. Don't say the words like, I hope you find closure. Um, I know they mean well, but it's really important to say, you know, I hope you find answers. And more importantly, I hope you find your brother. We ask that you share this episode as well as John's photo. We believe this case is solvable, and there is likely someone out there who knows a piece of information that could ultimately lead to the answers that the family is waiting for. We also ask that you follow the Facebook page Finding John Riley, and that's J-O-N-R-I-L-E-Y. That page provides many updates and opportunities to help. We will link it in our show notes and on our social media pages. When we first approached Judy to do this episode, she suggested that we use the words help find John Riley rather than missing John Riley. And that's exactly what we are asking, is for folks to help find John Riley. So in this episode, we outlined the life and disappearance of John Riley. John's story is a complicated one. John fought through his pain and trauma to bring justice to the man and the system that abused him. There was no parade for John. There was barely an apology or an acknowledgement of wrongdoing. John fought that fight not just for himself, but for all survivors and victims of childhood sexual abuse. And now John and his family need our help. On April 26, 2013, 46-year-old John Riley left a note for his mother at her home in Meaford, Ontario. He stated that he was heading to Toronto for a couple of days, but he did not return. He left behind his vehicle, bank card, computer, and personal items indicating that he was returning. John was in constant contact with his family. He would not have vacated his life, and there is no evidence that he did. While he enjoyed hiking, there is no evidence to suggest that he went hiking instead of going to Toronto. John was known to frequent coffee shops near Church and Wellesley in Toronto's village neighborhood. While there, he would stay at the YMCA, the Salvation Army, or other hostels or shelters. John would do odd jobs while in Toronto or freelance computer work. Were you in the village in April of 2013? Do you remember John? Do you remember seeing John with anyone? Or were you in Meaford in April of 2013? Do you know John or remember seeing him? Do you hike the Bruce Trail? Have you ever come across a green backpack? Were you on the trail in April of 2013? Do you know John or remember seeing him? While there may be anecdotal evidence that John ran into Bruce MacArthur, it is not conclusive. We do not want that to be the focus of this episode, nor do we want it to distract from the message that John Riley is missing and he needs to be found. In 2013, John Riley is described as a 46-year-old white man he is listed as 5 feet 9 inches tall and weighs 220 pounds. John had short brown hair, with gray in it, and he has brown eyes. Anyone with information regarding his disappearance is asked to call the OPP non-emergency line or Crime Stoppers. Before we end this episode, we want to add this story that Judy shared with us about her brother John and how many out there believe that he is a hero. I remember there was this time I was at university, I was thinking about this today, and um this guy who turns out he was also a victim. I mean, there were dozens of boys over decades. And I was at university and I was just in the pub and this guy came up to me and he was one of the popular kids from an older year at school. And so it was, you know, sort of intimidating. Why is this guy talking to me? And 
he came up to me and he was sort of stuttery and he said, I just want you to know that your brother's a hero for what he did. We want to thank Judy and her family members for trusting us with her family's story. We're super grateful that we got the chance to work with you. As always, we want to thank you all for joining us for this episode of True North True Crime. We will be back soon with a new episode, or you can join us over on TNTC Plus for some bonus content that's already waiting for you. But until then, stay safe, everyone. Stay safe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.